Our Heavenly Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our Rock, our nearest Kingsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. I pray here this morning that we are continuing to celebrate the season of Easter. We should be full of feasting, rejoicing, and fellowship of the saints during this Easter season because through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Therefore, we declare Christ is risen. He is risen we should again be reminded that just like the disciples following the triumphant entry in John chapter 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when they had remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You know, I bring that up because, again, you're saying, if you've been following along, reading the gospel, reading at home with your family, you'll say, why again are we in the middle of John when we talked about his resurrection? Because we are certainly like the disciples and need to go back and in light of the resurrection, in light of his death on the cross, understand what was he was really saying and what he was doing today as we go back in the life of christ because of the breath of the spirit upon us in the understanding of the resurrection we will understand more clearly what we hear today today's gospel reading read alone teaches jesus new commandment that you love one another as i have loved you and that you love <clears throat> you should love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's kind of the crux. Now, there's a lot of things going on there, and we're going to address that. But as profound as this command is all by itself, the deep richness may be lost without the complete context in John's inspired narrative of the gospel. Today, we're going to start by looking at the beginning of John chapter 13, where our passage is found from. Let us hear God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, he says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now this is interesting. Jesus recognized that it was his hour. Up to this point, Jesus had avoided being arrested, being held in captivity, and even death up until now. We recognize that, again, that it was his time to depart from the world. This apparent defeat is not an accidental occurrence that God turns into good, but the triune God's intentional providential plan unfolding in which Jesus and the Father would be glorified. It is important for us to recognize that after he sees these things, Jesus says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That, as an intro, let us continue with verse 2, and it says this, and this really teaches us about the ministry of service. It is, the ministry of service is in light of the resurrection, in light of his substitutionary work on the cross. And here it says this in verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. You see, right there, Jesus is resting completely 
in God the Father's sovereign plan that is unfolding around him, including knowing fully that the enemy and his co-conspirators had plotted to betray him and kill him. And the key plotter is in the room. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. That girding, by the way, that is a servant's apron, so to speak. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and said to him, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Again, right there at the midst on, on what we would consider Monday Thursday, where they're having the Last Supper during that whole period of time, and what Jesus is doing, they don't really understand, but you're going to understand. So again, this is a reminder. We have to take everything that we see, everything that Jesus has done, all the teaching he has done, all the call of repentance, all of it is tied to a proper understanding through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, Here's the thing, I, I, I know at least for me, I grew up in, in, a, in a different world in the church and I never really understood this and I remember participating in places where the pastors and the elders would wash people's feet and I never quite understood what we were doing other than some sort of symbolism of serving. But there is a lot more going on here. The significance of this humble act is frequently lost to the awkwardness of having Jesus act as a servant to all of them. There is great symbolism going on here. The ceremonial custom of washing of feet was meant to specifically wash the dust off the person's feet. And you're all like, yeah, I knew that. I understand what they're doing. The dust is the symbol of the curse and sin. Consider Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go, and you, he's talking to Satan, shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that the promise in that battle is not in a high place, but on the ground and in the dust. Here God is telling us, that Jesus would come and defeat Satan and the curse here in the dirt and right here among us. Back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This verse actually brings clarity to another passage often misunderstood. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Nevertheless, she, that is the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, that's one of those foggy ones we go like, what in the world? Well, we need to understand this uh, a little bit better. Dr. Jeff Myers points out how that Paul, in that 
passage in 2 Timothy is following the text of Genesis 3. Consider, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It was the woman who was deceived. Genesis 3.13, the serpent deceived me. 1 Timothy 2.15, she'll be saved through childbirth. Genesis 3.15, and I, I guess those numbers lining up so well, that's just by accident. But I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Again, Jeff Myers would say this, it would be Eve's seed, childbirth to Jesus, that would save men by crushing the head of the deceiving serpent. Paul has shown how Eve has been instrumental in bringing about the fall into sin, but he does not stop there. He shows how indispensable she will be in the history of redemption. For from the fruit of her body will come the Messiah who will both save her and all of mankind. In fact, this is how every woman in particular is saved. For Paul switches to the plural in the last half of verse 15 and makes the application to women in general. There is a definite transition from Eve, the woman, to the singular, gone, which is back to women in general. And it says this, they will be saved if they continue in faith and holiness and submission. Women in general are not saved through bearing children. They are saved through the faith of the fruit of the childbirth, that is Jesus Christ. Returning back to Genesis chapter 3, we see in verse 17, remember our context here is the dust of the earth and how it is a curse. Then, then to Adam, this is God speaking, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In the toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now I'm going to pause right there because it's very important for us to recognize that God did create us to work. Remember, what did he say? What was the first command that God gave? God's first command was to take dominion to be fruitful and multiply. He expected man and woman to work together to take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, and not just, of course, for the sake of bearing children and perpetuating dominion that way, but also through the discipling of the nations. But here, he's saying that it's going to be harder than it would have been before because you have stepped out in rebellion. And look what it says. Coming back to the dust of the earth, till you return to the ground, he'll eat of it till he returns to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. With the fall of man and the curses that God pronounces upon all of mankind and the entire creation, this part of the gospel begins to look much more significant in that Jesus is fulfilling the promises of how people will have the curses of sin washed off. Returning back to our narrative in John chapter 13 at verse 10, it says this, Jesus said to Peter, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? I don't think they did. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say it well, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus right here is providing clear direction to the disciples to act as he had acted by getting down as a servant to be instruments to the washing away of the curses of sin by trusting God's providential plan of making disciples of all the nations and teaching them all that he has commanded. I think that totally changes it when you look at this. I know it did for me when I first came to this understanding. There is so much going on here. Our next point is about counting the cost. Look at John chapter 13 and beginning at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. This is Jesus again addressing the disciples. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now this is a quote from Psalm 41 where the psalmist laments of his enemies bearing false witness against him. And it is even one who, as verse 9 in Psalm 41 says this, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, in whom I ate bread, has lifted up his heel against me. There's still this context of this battle going on with the serpent. Right here, Judas is being um, incited by Satan to lift up his heel and crush Jesus. Jesus goes on, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. He's assuring them. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is all language right here to say that you're going to go out. I'm going to go out, and you after me are going to go out. And if people receive you and the message of truth and the discipleship and teaching all that he had commanded, if they receive you, they're going to receive me. And if they receive me, they're going to receive the one who sent me. When Jesus had said all these things, he was troubled in spirit. Why? Because he had truly walked there with Judas. He had eaten with Judas. He had fellowshiped with Judas. He had preached the truth to Judas. He said this after he was troubled in spirit. And he testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is this? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give this piece of bread and when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you have to do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately 
and it was night. Judas knows the cost of what's going on, but it is too high for him. Judas had come to realize that all he had hoped to aspire to when Jesus becomes king of Israel was not to be. Judas believed that Jesus and his appointed military and civil leaders would suppress all their enemies and they would be Jesus' co-regents. Jesus had continued even to this very night speaking of dying and that through death that men would be delivered from their greatest enemy. We, like Jesus, go through our lives often never identifying our true enemy. We can get caught up in the political noise around us. We can find ourselves clinging to our own solutions for sin <coughs> and our inability to be reconciled to God, our Creator. Judas has had all the evidence required to know that Jesus was God's Son. In fact, he knew that Jesus was God's Son, and he did not want to be a part of God's plan. If you had been with us this morning during Sunday school and our study on Psalm 2, you would recognize when, when God is sitting there on the throne and he's hearing the nascent rage and not want to submit to Jesus, not want to submit to him, he's, he just laughs. Because imagine this, he doesn't want to be part of God's plan and yet he is still part of God's plan, just as all of we are, all of us here today, and everyone outside here today. God is unfolding his providential plan around us. Judas is one of the best examples of why simply showing all the facts and evidence is the wrong approach to reaching the lost. We fall in, into the temptation that if I am just eloquent enough, winsome enough, if I can just provide all the facts, people will come around and see the truth. We must realize that unless God opens their eyes and gives a person a heart of flesh, they will not change. We must ask God to change their hearts. One commentary reminds us that all the evidence in the world pointed to the fact that Jesus was more than a man. Judas knew that. Jesus had read his mind and Jesus had raised the dead. He knew that this man was somehow God, but he was revealing his evil. That is Judas. He wanted God to serve his goals. And when Jesus was no longer interested in his nationalistic goals, he felt, this again is Judas, that he should die. That is Jesus should die. Well, the evidentialists believe that with facts, they will convince people and they're going to prove Christianity. Now, evidentialism has a long history, both in the Catholic and Protestant circles. And at its very end is the essence of the scholastic approach. And, and the reason I want to bring that up, people of God, hear me on this. Right? I am all for all of us studying the great works and teaching our children the great works. But we must not look at God's word as something merely to be studied. We must guard against that. These are the words of the living triune God being spoken to us. We talked about this last week, how God created the ears as the organ of submission and the eyes as the organ of judgment. 
our ears, we are to hear God's word, recognize it as the living words of the triune God speaking to us. We must submit ourselves to it. Do not treat all that we learn about God as some rationalistic idea, but rather these are God's words to us. When we turn the Bible into something simply to be studied, like other great works of antiquity, and not as the true and holy and completely sufficient word of the living triune God, we are simply taking the idolatrous view and we, that we should define God in His creation. And we understand that difficulty all around us. Returning to our passage in John chapter 13, we see five glories going on. Now this reminds us as we consider this passage from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. And so as to wake everyone up from this very humid stupor here today, what is the chief end of man? That's right. So if we're, if we're supposed to enjoy Him forever and we are to glorify God, when the word glory shows up in, in, a, in a short passage five times, let us pay attention. So when He, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. It's like, chow, chow, chow. What's going on? And you might actually say, what? So let's just break this down quickly here. All right, first of all, we see the word, it starts with now, the Son of Man is glorified. So henceforth, moving from here forward, Jesus, the Son of Man is glorified. And that is what? Being full of glory. And God is glorified with him. And if God is glorified in him, think about this, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Here we are seeing a lot of glory. We tend to think of Jesus' glory simply from his resurrection to his ascension. Jesus, however, declares right here from the first word now and to the last word immediately that the cross was in fact the glory to the Father and certainly to himself. We often cannot see in our own lives how God is being glorified and what we see as trouble and defeats. We must trust His providences, knowing that He will be glorified. And through that, we can enjoy His faithfulness to us forever. goes on and says this, Little children, this is a term of endearment. Jesus is speaking. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I have said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, Jesus is not telling His disciples that He is abandoning them, but rather that he is establishing his church with them. Jesus now gives the direction concerning the distinguishing feature of the church. So here he says, I'm going to go away. You can't come with me. But this is not, again, some idea that he's stepping back. No, he is turning over the call of the church to them. And I want us to really hear this. Consider two other places where it the Lord gives a command. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. 
And secondly, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 at verse 3, Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. So we need to hear and submit ourselves to this new commandment. Jesus says in verse 34 of John chapter 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That's the what. As I have loved you, that's the how. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We are to love all the people of God. Listen up. We're called to disciple one another, to bear up one another's burdens. We are called to love all the people of God, the weak ones, the strong ones, the helpless ones, the ones who are relevant, the ones who are cool, and even the ones that are awkward, those that are clean and those that are dirty, those to hold to every point as each of us think, and those who may differ in some ways to their thinking. It is only by God's providences that you and I have been called and have had the privilege of having the Spirit of God provide us with understanding. We should, like Paul, humbly teach all he has commanded with the understanding that is simply of God's merciful grace that we know God's saving truth through Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 3.8 says this, To me, who I am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. He is telling us right here, we, we are to be humble. We are to bear all of our burdens together. We are to disciple the nations. We are to teach them all he has commanded. And it doesn't matter if the person is awkward or brilliant. We are to love them. You know, it says this. I want to point this out. Again, the disciples are identified. If it's not clear, hear the imperative of the command of Jesus to us. By this... By what? Loving one another. All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We must not try to define love by the standards around us, but by God's holy and true word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Make no excuses, people of God. Hear me and hear what God is telling us. Do not hate your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your brothers in Christ, and even the unbeliever. If you live your life with your own family's lives at the center, trying to preserve them at all costs, What's going to happen? John 12, 25 tells us, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
But this loving the people of God has given us as our neighbors eludes us. And we often, by our actions and words and even inactions or words not spoken, hate people. Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us of our sinful tendency, men, to hate our wives. In verse 28 it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does to the church. If you are not loving your wife as Jesus loved, loves the church, you are hating your wife. Proverbs 13, 24 tells us this, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. If you're not disciplining your children in love to restore them in discipline to Christ Jesus through sometimes spanking, repentance, and finally restoration to God the Father and then to your family, you are hating your children. Even our enemies. Luke chapter 6 tells us, But I say to you, to, to you who hear, again hear, Submitting, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those that curse you, and pray for those that spitefully use you. We often act in hate when we are not truthful to our spouses, children, parents, friends, and fellow saints, and even to the pagans around us. We are acting in a hateful way. Proverbs 26, 24, beginning verse 24 says this, He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. That is complete abominations in his heart. Through his hatred is covered by though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall in it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Listen, people of God, a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it. And a flattering mouth works ruin. We hate when we speak lies. But it must be tempered with the mission of making disciples. We need to keep this in mind. Why do we love? Is it simply that we are commanded to? So we're being you know, under compulsory to do it? Or, we do want, or do we understand our call to take dominion and be fruitful and multiply? We are to be fruitful in cultivating disciples, not crushing followers. Temper with wisdom and teach. Proverbs 15.1 tells us this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Listen now. Verse 2 says, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. God has given you knowledge of Him. He's given you a new heart. He's given you a call to make disciples. Use that wisely and rightly. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. All this goes on, and we see at the very end of this passage that the ignorance continues. Peter doesn't know the cost. Look at this in verse 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. In spite of all that Jesus had taught his disciples, they do not understand what is happening um, or their roles in God's kingdom. We leave this passage being reminded that Peter and all his disciples will forsake Jesus. We are reminded that Jesus, after the resurrection, will, be a step, will establish his church with forgiven sinners. They will, in spite of themselves, demonstrate the learning curve of making disciples of Jesus. We see that where the disciple, excuse me, we see that where the disciples have some clarity to God's intention to disciple the nations after Pentecost, many old habits and incorrect ideas must be identified and repented of. God never intended for the people, his people, his disciples, to have it all figured out or to have all their theology perfect before beginning to disciple others. And if you don't believe me on that, consider parenting. Or see today's reading from Acts. I'm just going to highlight one piece out of here. Acts chapter 11, verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same, that is, equal gift, as he gave or granted us, then we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand or forbid or hinder God. When they heard, this is, they hearkened, they understood, they submitted. This is the other disciples that were questioning him. These things, they became silent. They were astonished. They ceased to labor against God. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It seems that after all had God, that God had said to Israel throughout her history, God's declaration of Israel's purpose to be the priest of the world. And in fact, Jesus called a repentance of the people of Israel against their prideful idolatry. Even the disciples were fuzzy on this purpose. We, the, the CREC, Christ Reformed Evangelical Church, right here in the greater Maryland area, are to be making disciples and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. Every man, every woman, and every child in this church and to all to whom God engrafts into this family, the church. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word, for it exposes to us the enormity of sin, the enormity of man's satisfaction with himself, the enormity of the fallen man's hatred for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By your mercies, may we love you and our fellow man. Forgive us our Oh, our Father, have mercy upon us. Give us strength to stand, to resist, and overcome the powers of darkness. And bless us as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.